Most of you are aware that since the middle of January, we have been steadily working our way through the epistle of James on a Sunday morning. And today we're coming to our ultimate study in James. Final passage for us this morning is James chapter 5, verses 13 through 20. And you'll find it in page 1885 in the Church Bible. For those watching from home on our live stream broadcast, both here in the United States and overseas, very warm welcome to you. And likewise, if you're at home this morning, it would be helpful for you to have a Bible on your lap, open up, and follow us in our study this morning. As each Sunday morning, we prayerfully and intentionally ask, what message does God have for us this morning as we open up His Word and study it together? And of course, inevitably, the passage speaks into our lives week by week. And so this morning, James chapter 5 at verse 13. And James begins by asking three fairly straightforward questions. And he begins with these words. Is any one of you in trouble? He should pray. Is anyone happy? Let him sing songs of praise. Is any one of you sick? He should call the elders of the church to pray over him and anoint him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. The Lord will raise him up. If he has sinned, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective. Elijah was a man just like us. He prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the land for three and a half years. Again, he prayed, and the heavens gave rain, and the earth produced its crops. My brothers, if one of you should wander from the truth, and somehow someone should bring him back, remember this. Whoever turns a sinner from the error of his way will save him from death and cover over a multitude of sins. Amen. And we trust that God will bless to us this reading from His Holy Word. Before I go any further in our study this morning, allow me on your behalf to welcome Dr. Mark Patterson, who's with us this morning. Mark, please stand for a moment and let's express a warm welcome to Mark for being with us this morning. Mark is one of the senior leadership across our denomination, and he's responsible for education of our pastors, and he and he alone is responsible. So just, just to give you a sense of what's what, Mark, we're delighted and thrilled that you're with us this morning. He's been a senior uh, pastor in a congregation out in California, and he's with us for a few days, and we're thrilled and delighted you're here. Thank you. Now, over the last couple of Sundays, I'm saying couple of Sundays, I think this is our eighth or ninth study in the Epistle of James since those early weeks in January, we have discovered that James, if you were to characterize his writing, I think we would say with some measure of certainty that it is hard-hitting, intensely practical, and challenging. Yet, it is also warm and pastoral in its approach. And James has that wonderful blend of being deeply penetrating, bringing timeless truths into our lives today. And he does it in a manner that's absolutely irresistible. And that's what we're going to discover in our final study this morning. 
Last Sunday morning, as we looked at the middle section in chapter 5, James was encouraging both his first century readers and us also in the 21st century to persevere, to show patience amidst suffering. But today, he's moving on from patience and suffering, and he's dealing with that very controversial issue of healing. And what part does faith play in healing? New Testament scholars for, oh my goodness, almost since first or second century have wrestled with exactly what James means in this passage. So, as we immerse ourselves in it this morning, please pay attention as it's intensely practical. James begins asking the three questions as we mentioned. If anyone is in trouble, he should pray. If anyone is happy, let him sing songs of praise. And of course, prayer is for the Christian that natural, instinctive response when you are facing challenging, difficult days. But James also adds, if anyone is happy, let him sing songs of praise. And what he's saying is this, when you're going through days of great blessing, when the presence of God is almost tangible to you, your prayers are being answered, you sense the warmth of His touch. Those are days when praise, adoration, thanksgiving should be a daily exercise, and that's exactly what James is talking about here. And then he takes us to a whole new level, and he writes this, if any one of you is sick, he should call the elders of the church to pray over him and anoint him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. The Lord will raise him up. So let me ask, when was the last time you had a pretty nasty flu? It moved into bronchitis and you thought, right, that's it my last option, I'm going to phone the church office and have the elders come for a visit and pray for me. And most of us don't even think along those lines, do we? Because in the back of our mind, we know we have come so far, medically speaking, since the first century, we have seen huge advancements in medical technology, techniques in surgery, that we almost never think of phoning the church and asking the elders to come and pray. Now, let me build in a caveat there and say this, that I think we would agree that when we call elders and ask them to come and pray for us, it usually means it's pretty serious. Wouldn't you agree? because we've seen such advances in medical technology. We have, of course, here in the congregation and all three services this morning, multiple doctors, nurse practitioners, folks involved in healthcare. And I would have to say, I am grateful to God for each one of them. I'm grateful that I live in the 21st century where antibiotics are readily available. Are you not? Of course we are. And we see in the providence of God, God working in the life of our medical community, enabling them to think and plan and pray and train and bring all the expertise and experience 
to help us have healthy lives. And for that, I am immensely grateful. And so, when we read a passage like this, we're asking ourselves, how do we relate to it? What is its impact on us? Now, last October, or last September, rather, I met with uh, a number of our elders on the prayer team. And we met in my office around a table I have there, and we were looking at events coming up in October, November, December, and so on. And we were planning and preparing and thinking of various ministry imperatives for the prayer team. At the end of that meeting, there was two elders and my colleague, Stan Johnson, and they said, Richard, we know you've been ill for the last six or seven months, and that was absolutely the case, and I had struggled with various symptoms. And they said, would you mind if we prayed for you? I said, of course, and anytime someone wants to pray for me, I'm more than happy with that. And so they came alongside me, put hands on my shoulders, and prayed for me. Prayed very sincerely, profoundly. I was deeply moved that they would do that. And then three days later, much to my surprise, I had open heart surgery. And I can only conclude that calling the elders should be a last resort. (laughs) Not the three I have mentioned, for goodness sake, unless you want bypass. And I'm kind of teasing them a little and calling them the Prisma prayer team. And I think they work on a commission basis, so just keep an eye out for them. In fact, I'm tempted to go to this passage and put a little red line through the word elder and pen above it, deacon. (laughs) Because clearly that's a little safer than having the elders come and pray for you. Now, despite all of my ridiculous silliness, during that time of prayer, one of the elders prayed, Father, please help doctors to discover the root cause of what's going on with Richard. And three days later, they did. I've lost a pound for every week since Christmas Day. I have more energy now than I have known in a decade. I honestly feel like a teenager again. Ruth has said, no, thank you. We don't need that. Richard, we do not want you returning to normal. I would rather have two 30-year-olds, one to do the garden and the other to do my honeydew list, than have you back to normal. And I kind of smile and nod, but I genuinely am feeling so much better. But I'm also conscious of this. During that time, you were praying. I have hundreds, hundreds of notes and cards praying for you. Hope you're doing better. The Lord is holding you close. And they go on one after another after another. In fact, it got to the stage where Ruth restricted me to opening 10 cards a day, and that went on for weeks and weeks. Prayer. And so here's my question. We know how to respond when we pray over a loved one who is so hurt, so wounded, that their health is in jeopardy, and when God heals spectacularly, we know how to respond. We respond with thanksgiving and praise. 
But what do we do when we pray with all of the sincerity we can muster, and that loved one does not get better, in fact, deteriorates and passes away? And it's so much worse when it's a grandchild. It's dreadful when someone in our family takes their life. It's awful when in the midst of marriage, one partner calls for a divorce, and it turns nasty and sour and is dreadfully painful, and we don't know what to do. How do we heal emotionally, psychologically, after being so badly wounded and beat up? In Matthew's gospel, Jesus says this, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. Please note, Jesus fully understands there is a need and a place for the medical community. So, why doesn't Jesus simply say, well, I would suggest you get the elders to come and pray? In 2 Timothy, Paul writes to Timothy, a good, close, dear friend, and says, I left Trophimus sick in Miletus. And the temptation this morning is to say, Paul, what on earth were you thinking? Why didn't you simply call the elders around to lay hands on Trophimus and pray for him? Why did you leave him like that? Paul, come on. On another occasion, in writing to the church at Philippi, he writes, Epaphroditus became so ill, he almost died. Paul, what were you thinking? The first signs of him being seriously ill, why didn't you call the elders to lay hands on him and pray? Because James tells us, and he will be healed. What is going on here? So, what do we do when God does not heal and we have prayed with sincerity and with faith. Let's look back at the passage again. And James says, Is any one of you sick? He should call the elders of the church to pray over him and anoint him with oil in the name of the Lord. Now let's pause right there. When James writes, In the name of the Lord, this is not a casual prayer. This is not a prayer that you will run through your mind when you're driving to work in the morning and you've got a couple of minutes sitting at a traffic light and you're thinking, oh, Father, be with Susie and William today. I know that he has an interview and I want you to look after them as a family and be with their wee ones in school. A casual everyday prayer. That's not what this is. Nothing wrong with casual and everyday prayers. Not at all. But notice what James says, anoint him with oil in the name of the Lord. James is saying, call upon God in all of his fullness and in his revealed character and nature, and ask him who loves you more than anything else and has since the foundation of the world, the one who cares for you more than any other being, call out to him, ask him. That's what's going on here. That's a profound, deeply dependent prayer. 
And that qualifies what James is saying next. And then he says, and after the prayer offered in faith, and the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. And James seems pretty definitive, does he not? Will make the sick person well. And we would have to say, James, universally, that's not been our experience as a Christian people. What do you mean here? James, what am I missing here? Is there more to this than I first see? Well, pause again and look at it once more. And the prayer offered in faith. Now, what does that mean? Well, let me give you a hint. A couple of years ago, we spent several Sundays on what we know as the Lord's Prayer. And that passage in the Lord's, where Jesus teaches the Lord's prayer, prayer begins in the Gospel of Luke, and we read these words, and the disciples said to him, Lord, teach us how to pray. Why did the disciples ask him, teach us how to pray? Why didn't the disciples say, Lord, teach us how to walk on water? Teach us how to feed 5,000 with a handful of fish and a few loaves. Lord, teach us how to cure the blind and the lame and the dumb and the deaf. Lord, teach us how to bring people back to life. But that's not the request. The request was this, teach us how to pray. Because they, like us, from time to time, struggle when it comes to prayer. We struggle in terms of, am I articulate enough? Have I prayed enough? Do I have enough faith? And what the disciples were saying is this, Jesus, in you, we see God in all of His wonder. We see God manifest to us walking on earth, and we want what you have because we hear you and see you modeling prayer between you and your heavenly Father, and we understand that your relationship with Him is conceived and birthed and strengthened and developed in prayer and we want to know how to pray. The prayer offered in faith. In other words, Jesus, we want to pray like you. How does that prayer begin? Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, and here it comes, the prayer of faith. Thy will be done. Two weeks today, we will celebrate Easter Sunday. And on the Thursday, which we call Monday Thursday, the Scriptures teach us that when supper was finished, he went out to the garden, and he prayed. 
And he prayed with such intensity that he began to sweat drops of blood, and he cried out to his father, if there is another way, please show it to me. Please take it. I have no desire to go to Calvary. Yet not my will, but thy will be done. That's the prayer of faith. Thy will be done. And you may be tempted to think, Richard, I agree with what you're saying. I hear what you're saying. But honestly, if you had to push me in a corner, Richard, that sounds a little like an excuse. That sounds like a cop-out, a way out. Well, let me suggest this, that the person with great profundity, is driven to their knees and saying, Father, this situation is beyond me. I cannot deal with it. It is overwhelming me. It is absolutely debilitating to me and my entire family, and I hand it over to you. That doesn't sound like an excuse to me. That sounds like dependency. That sounds like trust. That sounds like wholehearted commitment. Thy will be done. That's a prayer offered in faith. I'm committing the person who is sick and ill into the hands of Almighty God. Is there anything greater that we could do? I suspect not. And as James says, and the prayer offered in faith, please note that. But James is not finished there. Notice what else he says. And we see it there at the end of verse 16. And he says, the prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective. Some of the best-known words in the epistle of James. The prayer of the righteous man is powerful and effective. What is he talking about here? Prayer, we understand. The righteous man, what does that mean? That is an individual who says, Lord, I want to be like Christ in every aspect of my life, in my thought pattern, in my behavior, in my motivations, in my desires, in my prayer life, in my interaction with family and friends and people at work, I want to be known as an individual of integrity and character and transparency and holiness and purity and righteousness. I want to model for my children and my grandchildren and folks at work genuine, heartfelt Christian faith, the prayer of a righteous man. And please hear this. I want to be as gentle and as pastoral as I possibly can because I'm about to step onto thin ice here, so please forgive me. Some of us this morning have been so badly beaten up by the circumstances and challenges of life, it feels to you as if your heart has been broken and shredded and thrown away. 
And it might be the death of a spouse, the death of a child. The gut-wrenching horror and overwhelming sadness of the death of a child in your family. Or perhaps you've longed for children and it doesn't seem to be happening. And these issues are so dominant in your life, it is the first thing you think of in the morning when you wake up. It is the last thing you're conscious of before you go to sleep at night. And it causes you to be awake at times in the middle of the night. And please forgive me for saying this, but I wonder if those hurts and pains and moments of grief and sadness brought into your life have become such a part of you. That's the only way you identify yourself anymore. It's what determines how you live. It defines what your future will be. And I cannot help but wonder if this morning you have to take all of that grief and pain and hurt and the debilitating nature and the disabling that it brings into your life and put them down. And put them down at His feet. And then leave them there. And you know how hard that is. You've tried multiple times, but this morning, by the grace of God, put them down. Father, I can't deal with them. It's overwhelming. The tears come too readily. My heart is tender and broken. I need your help. Please assist me. Strengthen me. Engage me by the indwelling power of your Spirit to put them down and leave them there. I don't want to live like this anymore. That takes courage. That takes strength. That takes a work of the Spirit of God wrestling in the deep recesses of your heart. Because when you step away and when you want to leave them in the past, they will call to you and demand your attention and become angry because you're breaking old patterns and old thought processes, and you are saying, I'm done. I will no longer live with the pain. I want to rest in Him. I want to feel His presence and His love. I want to be encouraged by Him. I want to be lifted up, and I will no longer allow these things to determine who I am. The only thing that will determine who I am is my relationship with Christ. That's a call for prayer in faith. That's what James is hinting at and the healing, the emotional stability that takes place comes from that desire to be a prayerful, righteous individual who says, I need Him. 
And so when James wraps it all up and says the prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective, that's what he means. Is James as hard-hitting and as practical at the end as he was at the beginning? I think he is. And may God take his word and seal it into the very depths of our hearts this morning. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this passage of Scripture today. Thank you for the friend we have in Jesus, where all our burdens can be put down, all our sins and griefs, you can bear them, take them from us, and allow us, please, to rest in you. Father, you are consistently kind and gracious and good to us. Heal us, strengthen us, empower us, please, to be those mature, growing disciples that you long for us to be. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.